Is this operating properly? Good. Well, it's really a great pleasure uh, to be here in uh, Brooklyn, uh, to be with you all. And um, I am a Brooklynite. I was born in Brooklyn a long time ago, <laughs> shortly after the Paleolithic era <laughs> ended at uh, Brooklyn Jewish Hospital. It was called then. I'm told it's still around, but has a, has a different name. And then I, I was only a Brooklynite for a very short time. When, when I was a year old or so, my family moved out of Brooklyn to the distant suburbs called Queens. <laughs> we lived in Queens. That's where I grew up. And it's also a pleasure to be here. Uh, uh, Tia and I go back a long way. I practiced together at Tassajara in the 70s um, and have stayed in touch since then. Um, and we have a very uh, affectionate uh, relationship with each other. And then also, uh, she is my Dharma sister. So Tia and I both received Dharma transmission from uh, Sojin Mel Weitzman. And that's kind of the, the way it goes in Zen, is by lineage. So our, both our lineages are the same to Mel. And then Mel received Dharma transmission from Huitsu Suzuki. And Huitsu Suzuki received Dharma transmission from his father, uh, Shunryu Suzuki, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. You all know that. Uh, some of you know that, I think. But. And it was a pleasure to uh, talk last night. Uh, Greg uh, and Laura and I um, had dinner together and then roamed around Brooklyn looking for a tea shop that was still open. Excuse me. But it gave us the opportunity to have a good long visit and for me to hear uh, a good deal about how things were going here, which is very well, as I understand from them and as I see. What a beautiful place you have here. It's quite wonderful. Place to practice. So, and Catherine also is a, a, a friend from Green Gulch. Uh, uh, for, for many years, <coughs> she lived there, uh, and I lived there and live there. Green Gulch Farm in uh, just north of San Francisco, which is one of the San Francisco Zen Center locations. Steve Stuckey was here a couple of weeks ago, and he also lived at Green Gulch back in the 70s, and there's a, an iconic photo of Steve. At that time, we, had, we were doing small farming. And we were going to try to do it without a tractor and using horses instead. 
and there's an iconic photo of Steve with two, two horses, I think there were two horses, plowing uh, a field at Green Gulch. He was the only one who knew anything about farming, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> he was from uh, uh, farm country. Kansas or Nebraska, or I don't remember exactly, but people like myself knew nothing about such things. Anyway, so what I wanted very much to talk about this morning um, is uh, teachings, teachings about and from uh, Suzuki Roshi. Uh, Roshi, just for those of you don't, who don't know, Roshi just means teacher or, or venerable teacher. So Shunryu Suzuki, we called him Suzuki Roshi. Um, but I thought I would, I know Catherine said a few things, and I thought I would also just mention a, a couple of autobiographical points so you know a little bit more about me. So I came to, I left New York um, when I was uh, 21 and uh, went to uh, uh, San Francisco and began practicing there, practicing at San Francisco Zen Center. And that was in the fall of 1968. And uh, uh, it's complicated has many different aspects how that happened. But I thought I'd mention that uh, one of the factors involved was when I was, uh, I guess, an, an older teenager and uh, a very young adult in my early 20s. My main experience was confusion and disturbance. So this was outer. When I looked around, what I saw didn't make any sense to me. You know, this was in very tumultuous times. Maybe all times are tumultuous times. Uh, but there was a great deal that didn't make sense, and, I was, and, and that led me to look for something that made sense. External and internal also. Uh, confusion, disturbance, upset, depression, uh, you name it. <laughs> so um, I mentioned this for a couple of reasons. One was that when I was thinking about, well, how did I get here? That's, you know, that's actually a, a root cause. There are other people around me, some of my cohorts, friends at the time, they just were carrying on, you know, and becoming a doctor so that their mother could say, my son, the doctor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I 
was very confusing for my parents. You're doing what? <laughs> I remember my, I spoke to my aunt once, my aunt Fran, who still lives in Brooklyn. I'm not going to see her this visit. But she would, she, I had this conversation with her on the phone. So what are you doing out there in California? I'm practicing Zen. So, you making a lot of money? That's <laughs> <laughs> her first question. <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> At that time, I was living at Zen Center, and I was, I, my, my income was free room and board and uh, uh, a monthly stipend of $50. So I, I couldn't say I was making a lot of money. So you're not making, are you happy? Is it making you happy? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> so I was very mystified for her. What the heck I was doing, you know? Anyway, I bring it up on, for two points. One is that you also, some of you, all of you, maybe, also, are disturbed, upset, uh, confused, and uh, seeking, looking. That's the, the bad side of being upset, disturbed, and confused, is being upset, disturbed, and confused. The good side is that it actually impels us. It's a, uh, uh, you know, um, what that's called, it, it, it moves us toward uh, seeking toward the path, in fact. And this is the way it's supposed to be. This is what Zen practice is like. That's, this is not a mistake. This is not an accident that it happens this way. So even going back to Shakyamuni Buddha, the story of Shakyamuni Buddha has this element in it also. And uh, some years ago, I guess it's decades now. I was reading a book by a man named Stephen Batchelor, who's a very uh, wonderful Buddhist uh, scholar and teacher and practitioner. And he was talking about Shakyamuni Buddha's life. And he said, Shakyamuni Buddha's life is our life. It's not, it, it's not about some guy who lived 2,500 years ago. It's about us and our own path our own development. So right at the beginning of the story, the mythic story, and I think it's best to, I think it works best for, under, for us to understand the story of Shakyamuni Buddha's life as myth. In the mythic story, you know, we all know this thing, this aspect, which is, you know, he grew up in a place where there were very few problems. Everything was really wonderful, and all the food was always good, and the potatoes were always baked thoroughly. And uh, uh, you know, he was surrounded by uh, beautiful people who worked out every day, and so on and so forth. You know, but he knew something was up. There was some internal confusion. Something didn't make sense to him, and he went famously. Uh, with his charioteer, Chanda. He went with Chanda to the city 
There were four visits he made to the city. And on the first one, he saw someone who was sick. And on the second one, he saw someone who was old. And on the third, he saw a funeral procession, someone who was dead. And on the fourth, he saw a monk, a practitioner. Not a Buddhist practitioner, because he hadn't invented Buddhism yet. <laughs> but there were a lot of those folks, apparently, back in India at the time. And in each one of these first three visits, he was shocked. He was dismayed. It was like, how could this be? Because he saw what are the universal, the, perhaps we could say, the universal, most common human upsets and disturbances. Things that we don't like. We don't want this to happen. We don't want to get sick. We don't want to get old. And we certainly don't want to die. How do you make sense of that? And, that's, and then he saw the monk. He said, oh, maybe this guy is trying to make some sense out of this. That works. And then he went home and, again, famously you know, cut off all of his hair and snuck out of the palace in order to pursue this. So this is kind of a blueprint for our, even though it may look very different, you know, in Brooklyn in 2001, uh, whatever this year is, 2013, <laughs> it may look different. But that's, that's the blueprint that we're following. So given that impetus, um, I started practicing Zen in New York also with Edo Taishimano over on, at that time it was on East, uh, West End Avenue and 67th Street in Manhattan. Uh, and then uh, through a series of fortuitous accidents, Carl Jung says, the right way to wholeness, the right way to wholeness is made up of wrong turnings and fateful detours. That's the right way to get there. Go wrong and stop too long in the wrong place. You get there. So by a series of wrong turnings and some right turnings and fateful detours, I wound up at San Francisco Zen Center um, in the fall of 1968 and had the great fortune, the great good fortune, to, to uh, practice with uh, Suzuki Roshi. Let's see if I can talk about this without getting too emotional. So this was a great good fortune on my part uh, because um, I got to experience um, someone who embodied the teaching and lived it. 
this is unusual. So that really, so his uh, way, uh, Suzuki Roshi's way, uh, really is the uh, inspiration for my own practice uh, and my own understanding. And his way, not just, you know, sitting in the zendo, but holding his glasses, or standing at the bus stop, or whatever. So that was very good for me. That made sense. That was a living response to the confusion and upset that I felt. Not a, not a final answer, which I'll get to in a, in a little bit but a, a way of, a way of, a, a way of responding to, a way of living with uh, the inevitable disturbances and upsets of our life. So I'll just mention one other thing. I can't remember if I mentioned, this is not yet the content of my talk. This is still the, <laughs> this is the introduction. I haven't gotten to the talk yet. Yeah, I'll get there soon. But one other thing I wanted to mention in terms of my own development was that, so Suzuki Roshi died in, um, at the end of 1971 and had uh, um, um, uh, named his successor uh, an American, one of the first American Zen teachers, really, at that time. Things are different now. Uh, but at that time, there were very, very few, maybe two other American Zen teachers. Uh, so he named Richard Baker, who we used to call Baker Roshi, as his successor. Uh, and uh, the aspect that I want to mention about that is that about 12 years later, it was 12 years later, 1983, there was a big scandal uh, involving Richard Baker, Baker Roshi. And the scandal, as scandals usually are, involved money, sex, and power, those three things the misuse of those. Some would say the abuse of those. And I was, at that time, I was president of Zen Center and one of the newer teachers at Zen Center. Uh, uh, that is, I was actually a very senior person, but, it, but relative to the way things are now, I would be considered very new. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, so I was right in the middle of it. So again, this was, to say the least, this was disturbing and upsetting. And my experience, which now I can summarize, it, you know, 
in a few short sentences, but of course that wasn't the way it was then. But my experience was that searching in Zen, I couldn't find any explanation for how this had happened. How someone who was an enlightened Zen Roshi <laughs> could act in ways that seemed uh, not so good, not so helpful, unhelpful. And I had an enlightenment experience, but it was an enlightenment experience not in the Zen sense. I was reading a Jungian analyst who was explaining about things that we know about now, called narcissism, called personality disorders, called the, um, the psychological shadow of a, uh, what do you call it, a, um, what's that word that means not balanced, an uneven. I'm not going to try to remember it. <laughs> anyway, an unbalanced power relationship. There's a shadow that's cast there. Unless you really are looking at that shadow and taking care of it and knowing about it and working with it, it's going to come up and grab you by the neck and throw you out the window. That's kind of what happened. So anyway, that's what led me to go back to school and then practice, uh, learn about, and practice Western psychology, psychotherapeutic psychology, which is what my day job is. I'm a psychotherapist in San Francisco. So again, I mentioned that both for me, uh, you know, this is part of my uh, life story, so to speak, but then also I, I wanted to make a broader point, which is this is again how Buddhism works. So when Buddhism moves from country to country, and it's moved a lot, it necessarily and importantly melds with and works with the local, the local culture. So when, when Buddhism moved from, from uh, India to China, and then from China to Tibet, and to Korea, and to Japan, and that now from Japan, not so much from China, there's a little bit from China, but mostly from Japan to the United States, somewhat from Southeast Asia to the United States. In each of those moves, it has been actually changed quite a bit. So for example, in Zen, we say Zen is Buddhism, but Zen is not exactly Buddhism. Zen is Indian Buddhism and Chinese Taoism kind of mixed together with a sprinkle of uh, Confucianism as well. So, for example, we say, uh, we say the way, right? Capital W, the way. When Joshu asked uh, Nansen uh, about, about, about the pet, uh, uh, I don't even know how to say it otherwise, he said, what is the way? Nansen said, everyday mind is the way. But the way, he said, what is the way? He didn't say what is, in India, that would have been bodhi. That would have been enlightenment. He would have said, how do you, what is enlightenment? What is bodhi? He said, what is the way? Which really is just, what is Tao? So the Taoism was right there, you know, very much mixed in. 
So I think that Buddhism, Zen coming to the United States, it will, it needs to, it must get smart about and work with and live with and mesh with Western psychological understanding for which there, there isn't anything in Zen like that. There's a kind of a Buddhist psychology, but it's a different sort of a thing. And not only that, but also feminism and also democracy. These are all very foreign to the, to the culture of, of Zen as it has come to the United States. It was a toss-up at the beginning whether Tassajara was going to be just for men. It was a monastery, you know, it was a, the Zen center location in the mountains. And there was some idea, well, this should be just for men. But eventually we decided, no, it's got to be co-ed. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Western psychology, feminism, democracy, and, and maybe also social engagement, social action. Because that's the, that's the ground here in the United States, here in Brooklyn and other places, that's the ground that Zen is growing in. So it's going to take, like a plant taking its nutrition from, from the ground, it's going to take its nutrition from those, from those places. Okay, so now I'm going to start the talk. <laughs> So what I wanted to uh, talk about is, oh, um, so I, so there's San Francisco Zen Center, and then, oh, yeah, yeah. and then also um, I started, uh, near my psychotherapy office, um, I started a, a small Zen group, much smaller than this, just 10 or 15 people, and we meet just once a week on Thursday evenings at St. John's Presbyterian Church in one of the rooms there and sits Zazen and I give a talk and so on like that. Uh, strong practitioners, wonderful people. And um, at the beginning of 2013, I said, excuse me, let's work with Suzuki Roshi's book, there's a, a second collection, the first collection of his Dharma talks that was published is a famous book, you probably all know, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And then there's a second collection, which Ed Brown uh, uh, collected and edited with actually uh, Sojin uh, Mel Weitzman's help, a second collection of his uh, talks called Not Always So. Many of you know, I'm sure. So I said, let's start, with not, let's start with page one and just make our way through, not always so, and I'll talk about it and we'll discuss the different aspects of it and so on. So we started with the introduction, which was even before page one, and, uh, and here it is, almost the end of February, and I think that we've covered the first two pages. <laughs> we haven't really covered it, but we've scratched the surface anyway. So what I wanted to speak about were two things that, uh, and the introduction was written by Ed uh, and has many, many wonderful things in it. I wanted to speak about two, two, two portions of it which describe uh, what Zen 
teaching is, or one way to understand what, what teaching is, and also, uh, in a sense, what the point of our practice is, what the nature or quality of our practice is, or we could say what the nature or quality of enlightenment is. So Ed says in the introduction, he's talking about different things, and he said, Suzuki Roshi's words, he was referring to the talks and not always so, offer us the opportunity to awaken the teacher in us. So I thought that was a terrific description of Zen teaching. Zen teaching is not some information. I am not going to be conveying some information or some knowledge to you that I have, quote unquote, have, and then I'll give it to you and then you'll have it. It's not that sort of a thing. The words of a teacher awaken the teaching in you, in us. This is very good news. In other words, teaching is not, it's not an import. You don't have, and, and learning or, or practicing is not a matter of importing something. But rather, there is something already there that needs to be nurtured or cultivated in one sense and in another sense. We just have to allow it to, to, to grow and get, get out of the way. So it's not an import in that sense. Uh, again, referring to the mythic story of Shakyamuni Buddha, at the very end of his life, he said, in, in, in the way the story is told, his very last words were, don't believe anything I've told you don't necessarily believe what I've said to you. This was, he was addressing his disciples. Don't believe things that are written down in the books of wisdom. Rather, examine your own experience. Go deeply into your own life and your own experience and see what's there. And if it accords with what I've said, good. Well, then use what I've said. That's fine. But if it doesn't, feel free to discard what I've said. So this is a very uh, uh, affirming uh, kind of understanding of what, we, of what we already possess. And this was very much how Suzuki Roshi used to talk about it, and Dogen also. So Dogen uh, is a, again, many of you know this, but Dogen is a very uh, famous, well-known in certain circles, Zen master who lived in the first part of the 13th century in Japan. And he also, in that lineage that I was talking about, so, you know, Tia to Mel to Hoitsu to 
Suzuki Roshi to so-and-so, 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 and so-and-so. And if you go back, you get to Dogen, that, that teacher, student, te teacher, teacher, teacher to student, teacher to student, teacher to student, and so on, like that. Uh, so one of, uh, and Dogen was, I just finished a five-day um, study session of some of Dogen's work. I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, doing that. One of his, uh, in one of his, in one of Dogen's works, he says, Buddha nature is abundant in each one of us. That's like axiomatic, you know. That's, that's the ground that we're standing on. Buddha nature, or we could say enlightened nature, or Buddha. Buddha means awake. The, the, the Sanskrit uh, root is B-U-D-D, Bud. That means awake. If we called what we do in English rather than in Sanskrit, we'd call, instead of calling it Buddhism, we'd call it awakeism, wake upism. That's what we, that's what we're following, following here is wake upism, you know. This is, these are the teachings of, of waking up. So. Um, was I saying? I'll take a sip of water and it will come back to me. <laughs> Buddha nature is abundant in each of us. Thank you very much. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi's way of expressing this was uh, uh, practice or our way is a matter of wisdom, seeking wisdom. It's the same thing. It awakens the teacher in us. It's wisdom in us that is seeking wisdom. We may have a lot of ideas about it, you know, uh, that are personal to us. <laughs> we may think we know what we're doing, but thank goodness we're wrong when we don't. <laughs> It's actually something much bigger than our small idea of it might be. It's called wisdom in us that is seeking wisdom and that responds to wisdom when it, when it sees it outside. So that was Suzuki Roshi's, one of Suzuki Roshi's phrases that he used a lot. Wisdom seeking wisdom. Uh, my phrase is prajnatropism. So prajna is the Sanskrit word that means wisdom. And tropism, you may be familiar. So like heliotrope, plants are heliotropic, right? So they, when they're at, by a window, they, they lean toward the helio, toward the sun. It's their natural inclination to, to reach for the sun. And my sense is, you know, resonant with wisdom seeking wisdom is that we're prajnatropic. This is our natural inclination to reach for, in the language I was using earlier, to reach for what makes sense in our life. This is called wisdom. To what works with the way things are. We have a natural yearning for that. 
and the teaching is a response to that or, or, or helps us wake that up or, help, or actualizes that. In the traditional uh, Buddhist teachings, this would be called um, this, this wisdom-seeking wisdom or prajnatropism, this turning toward the way, uh, the Tao, the path, marga. This would be called uh, bodhicitta, or uh, more, more exactly, it's bodhicitta-otpada. Otpada means produce, uh, generate, and uh, chitta it means uh, thought or the idea or the, it actually involves both heart and mind, so it's, it's not just thought, but let's call it thought. Produce, thought, and bodhi is like Buddha means awaken, uh, uh, to awaken or enlightenment. So bodhicitta-otpada is um, uh, the production of the thought of enlightenment. Or, a uh, beautiful translation of Robert Thurman's uh, a Buddhist teacher, is the conception of the spirit of awakening. And conception means not the conception uh, not conception like something that happens in our head, but conception like what happens nine months before a baby is born. That conception. The conception, the, con the beginnings, the conception of the spirit of awakening, the inclination toward the path. That's bodhicitta or bodhicitta-odpada. Um, Traditionally, that's understood, or one way of understanding that is that that can be a moment in one's life. In a sense, what I was describing earlier, it wasn't a moment, but that series of accidents and wrong turnings and disturbances on my part and winding up practicing it at San Francisco Zen Center, uh, one could say that's bodhicitta-otpada, that's the awakening of the spirit, of, that's the arousing of the spirit of enlightenment or the arousing of the, the notion of it. And again, I dare say that for some of you, you might even be able to name a moment when that happened, you know, when you heard something or felt something and it was like, whoa, I'm going that way. You know? Or maybe looking back on it, you could say that. So that's one understanding of it as this kind of turning point in one's life. But this man Dogen, Dogen Zenji we call him, which Zenji is another honorific, uh, venerated teacher. Uh, Dogen had a way of, um, really a brilliant way of working with the traditional teachings. And he said, no, 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 no. Uh, this bodhicitta, this turning toward the path, this arousing of bodhi mind, he used the Japanese, hotsu bodai shin, this arousing, this awakening of, of uh, the spirit of enlightenment. This, just, this is not something that just happens once and then you're on the path. No, it happens on each moment. It happens again and again and again and again and again and it doesn't stop. It's not like at some point, oh, now I've gotten there. 
It just keeps going on like that. So this awakening the teacher in us is not just a one-time deal. It's not just something, oh, well, now the teacher has awakened me, and now I'm going on my merry way. This is awaken and awaken and awaken and awaken and awaken. That's why we say our practice is endless. In the uh, ordination ceremonies like, like Greg had and Catherine had and I had, uh, you know, the one expression of that is they say three times, at, at, um, you know, when, when the precepts are being given, they say, even after attaining Buddhahood, will you continue to observe them? You know, so in the language I'm using now is, even after attaining Buddhahood, will you continue to awaken way-seeking mind, the mind of the way? And the, the answer you're supposed to say is yes. <laughs> so say, yes, I will. And, you know, yeah, we feel, yes, I will. It's an opportunity to say, yes, I will. So this is the nature of the teaching, uh, arousing what is in us, not bringing in something foreign, and this way of continuing. I say a work in progress, you know. This is a work in progress. How are things going? Well, it's a work in progress. <laughs> An ongoing project. So, the other uh, part uh, of, of this, uh, the other point that I wanted to bring up from Ed Brown's introduction, and not always so, echoes this sense of a work in progress, echoes this sense of um, uh, what, what could be called continuous practice. Uh, so, Ed was talking about in this introduction, you, you'll, you can read it, it's, it's right there. Um, uh, and he says, uh, he's talking about um, enlightenment. And then he quotes Suzuki Roshi. And back in those days, <laughs> when Suzuki Roshi was alive, most of the people who came to Zen Center, many, many people, was, yeah, tell me about enlightenment. I want to get enlightened, you know, right? Because once you're enlightened, then everything is groovy, right? <laughs> Do people still use that word? <laughs> Maybe dating myself completely there. You know, but then once you're enlightened, then everything works well, and you get parking spaces whenever you need them. And, you know, it's groovy, because you're in accord with the universe and oneness and et cetera, et cetera. So we were all very interested in enlightenment. Foolish. Anyway, or some of us said rather foolish ideas about it. So he quotes Suzuki Roshi saying, enlightenment is to forget this moment and grow into the next. Enlightenment is, this is what enlightenment is. In other words, it is not a thing. It is not a state. 
That's the way we usually think of it as some state. It's some state and it's out there somewhere and how do I get from this state, which definitely is not enlightened, <laughs> to that state, you know, called enlightened. That's the way we usually think of it. This is called step-by-step -step practice. And Sukhara, said, no, 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 that isn't it. Enlightenment is to forget this moment and grow into the next. Do you get the sense in which how this is an ongoing project? Because if you forget this moment and grow into the next, well, then you have to forget this moment and grow into the next. And then the next thing to do is to forget this moment and grow into the next. It just keeps on going like that. So this is the quality of our practice and the, and the, and the, the, the notion of, uh, of, of what we're doing. If we can loosen our grip, our tightly held grip on this moment, on the past, on who we think we are, on some idea that we have, on some prejudice, on some grudge, if we can loosen our grip, then we can be ready for the next moment. Then we can grow into our life, forgetting this moment and growing into the next. Then we can grow into the way, the way things now are, which was different than the way they were a nanosecond ago, and certainly a minute ago, and certainly a week ago, or a year ago, or 20 years ago, or 500 years ago, or 5,000 years ago. Now we have this. So um, in that sense, it can't be held. Again, like kind of echoing this thing about the teaching, it's not a thing. It's not a possession, which, and I think for, for many of us, one of the wonderful aspects of practice is that it is so different than our culture. <laughs> you know, our culture is just full of possessions, you know, physical possessions, right? Getting stuff, you know, but then treating everything as though it were a physical, as though it were a, what a commodity, you know, the commodification of everything, you know. And endless advice about, you know, on the magazine covers, right? <laughs> endless advice about how to get enlightened, you know, in seven straightforward steps. You know, or, or lose weight, whichever you want to do. Get enlightened or lose weight or, you know, have a good relationship with your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse or whatever. There's lots of answers. But to forget this moment and grow into the next is an endless, it's endlessly question. It's endlessly open. It doesn't, there's no end to it. So a few further things I wanted to say about this teaching of uh, enlightenment is to forget this moment and grow into the next. One is, it matches, it works with, this practice works with 
how things are. And again, there, there are teachings very can be very useful uh, for us to understand a specific thing that I'm thinking of when I say how things are. Uh, Jane Hirschfield is a uh, poet and an old-time Zen Center person and Zen student, and someone once asked her, um, well, if you boiled it all down, you know, could you just tell me what Zen is all about, what Buddhism is all about, and just, you know, just a few words. She said, yeah, I think I could. One, everything changes. Two, everything is connected. Three, pay attention. <laughs> That's a good summary. So those first two, everything changes and every, so I'm, what, what I'm going to tell you about is something called the four, they're called the four Buddha seals. Seals means something like, uh, you know, seal, you know, like on a letter when you put a seal on it. And it also means this is the, like a signature. This is the mark of some particular person. So these are the four marks, the four signatures of Buddha. Buddha. The four Buddha seals are uh, impermanence. Everything changes. And uh, just like Jane said, and uh, everything is connected. Everything is connected is complicated because some of you may be familiar in Zen with the teaching called emptiness. Emptiness and everything is connected are two sides of one coin. Because things are empty of their own ongoing permanent nature, they're created by everything else. So they're completely connected to everything else. And I say they, but I mean us. <laughs> I mean every atom and every everything. It's all connected and and um, uh, simultaneously as co-produced. Anyway, that's the second one. Everything changes. Everything is connected, which means everything is empty. And then the third one is, the third and the fourth is kind of how you deal with the first two. If you uh, live, if if you don't live in accord with everything changes and everything is connected, that's called the third Buddha seal called dukkha, which is suffering. That's called suffering. <laughs> when we don't live in accord with the way things are, that's suffering. That's the kind of suffering that our practice alleviates. If you live in accord with the way things are, then you get the fourth Buddha seal, which is called nirvana. <laughs> nirvana, again, I am repeating myself, is not some place. It's not some thing. It's not some state. It's not some place else. Nirvana is when we live in accord with, our, with the way things are. Here in Brooklyn, <laughs> with your family, and with your friends, and with your job, and with the weather, and with the ceiling beams and with everything around you. That is nirvana. That's as much nirvana as we are going to get. You know, there ain't no more. Uh, but it's plenty, you know. So those are the four Buddha seals. So in that sense, the way things are, so if we can 
release our grasp, loosen our grasp on this moment and, and on our ideas about things, then we're much more living in accord with the, 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 the fundamental fact that everything changes and everything is connected. And, oh, so then the next thing I was going to say is, this is true on many different levels or modalities. I don't know exactly how to des describe it abstractly, but I'll tell you what I mean, which is, so this is true when we're sitting zazen, right? Forget this moment and grow into the next is how we practice zazen. So we might say, inside. But forget this moment and grow into the next is relevant in another modality called uh, relationships, you know, called your relationships with the person you pass on the street or with anyone. And it's the, the, the truths that are being that are, that, are, that are being described here are true at all levels. So it's true within us, it's true between us, and it's true at a, I dare say, at a national level, and at, at the level of all of human beings on the planet. So if we don't live in accord with the way things are, if we don't live with the understanding uh, that everything changes and everything is connected, then we can make enormous amounts of trouble, which we, as a species, and we seem to be doing a pretty good job of making enormous amounts of trouble because we kind of forgot that everything is connected and are acting on a principle of, yeah, everything's connected, but I'm actually the most important thing that's connected. <laughs> this is a misunderstanding. Deep, deep misunderstanding and, you know, causes no end of problems. So the last thing I was going to say, oh, and Greg suggested that, or suggested the possibility that we have some time for question and answer. So if I haven't totally blown out the circuits <laughs> by talking so long, I'm quite happy to hear your questions and discuss things with you. Um, the last thing I was going to say was just one other aspect of this, and this has to do, I guess for some of us in our own personal practice, both Zen practice and life practice, which is if our, our way is to forget this moment and grow into the next, then evaluation Criticism, self-evaluation, self-criticism is irrelevant. Don't listen to it. So for many years, I would uh, engage in lengthy self-evaluation about my practice. My practice is not good. That was a terrible period of zazen. I wasn't concentrated at all. Well, that one was a little bit better. 80%, 20%, 99%, 1%, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the emphasis on practice, because practice is based on 
forgetting this moment and going into the next. The emphasis on practice is not on results. Is not on success. And is certainly not, as I say, is not about, ev because if it were about success and, and results, well then we could evaluate. We could say, well I'm close, I'm far, I'm almost there. No, I'm very far away, et cetera, et cetera. All of these measurements, that's not the spirit of our, of our practice. The spirit of our practice emphasizes our sincere effort. Our sincere effort is exactly way-seeking mind. Our sincere effort is exactly uh, awakening the teacher in us. That's the emphasis of our practice. And uh, self-evaluation and measurement and results and success are somebody else's business, not our business. So this is like we, we're the pitcher in the baseball game and we throw the pitch, but there is no catcher. You know? <laughs> Just keep throwing the pitch, you know? throwing the pitch. We throw ourself and our life into this uh, way. Okay, thank you very much. How much time do we have, or what would be a good well, time to end? Time anyway, so, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need a little soji before lunch. It's 12.15. Okay, okay, good. Good, so uh, please, uh, um, do you have any questions or thoughts? Yes. No, I was fascinated by what you said about learning Western psychology and Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, there are. Um, you know, I've, I've taught some, you know, done workshops and so on about psychotherapy and Zen. And um, how I've come to understand it is that it's useful to understand their complementarity, their complements of each other. So my reading, uh, 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 Adolf Guggenbuehl Craig, who wrote about who was a Jungian who wrote about the power shadow, really complemented my understanding of what was going on in 1983 at San Francisco Zen Center. There's that kind of complementarity. Uh, another word that I use that describes the relationship is resonance. Because they're very different in various ways, in the way they look, in their history, and so on. Um, but there are certain kind of fundamental resonances in Zen practice and psychotherapeutic practice. And in a sense, I was one, of, one way of saying what I was just talking about was about freeing ourselves from a certain kind of restriction, a certain kind of habit, a certain kind of um, uh, stuck quality. And we look at the psychotherapeutic side of things, indeed, there's, 
there's a great deal that psychotherapy is about, that is, trying to help someone free themselves from some restrictive understanding, some blockage or some, some way that they're stuck in their life. So that's the usual, those are usually where I emphasize, because mostly I do feel their, their uh, complementary character and their resonant character. As for conflict, I think they could be conflicted if one had a, with, with, with a certain kind of idea of psychology or psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. I can imagine certain kinds of ways of understanding that would feel conflictual with a Zen understanding. But I don't think of psychotherapy that way, so I have a harder time finding the conflicts. Do you know of a conflict, or do you sense a conflict yourself? Or? No, I was sort of yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, in that I, I can't remember if I said this in that in the talk, but you know, in these various American elements, psychology and feminism and so on, I often say, well, we have to check back 500 years from now, because it takes about 500 years for Buddhism to to really mesh with the culture. So Buddhism was introduced to China in, um, you know, at the beginning of the Christian era, roughly. And then it was 500 years later that Zen really, um, uh, you know, flowered with Huinang, the sixth ancestor, and his, his, um, uh, the succession of, lineage succession of people that followed him. So we'll have to talk about this again 500 years from now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, what else? Yeah. So I just was going to say that another thing that America brings to Buddhism is the ethnic diversity. Yes, yeah, good point. Thank you. Right. Here in the melting pot, uh, we, we should melt. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, as I'm sitting here, I'm trying to, uh, it, was, it was remarkable, some of the points that you made. Do you, uh, do you have any references or, do, or, or notes I could um, remember this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> A book. <laughs> A website. <laughs> A website. <laughs> It's over, yeah. So, uh, thank you, and uh, I'm glad uh, it was that way for you. So that's very good. So just keep doing that, you know. And many things will come along that are useful. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in this idea that uh, samsara and nirvana are inseparable, that the my confusion is the way, and I'm interested in this because um, I have a, there's this tendency when observing the mind, whether I'm sitting or practicing mindfulness and activity, that um, <coughs> that kind of 
rejects, that pushes away what, what it is I, I'm observing and I'm trying to um, embrace my confusion more. I always wonder Good. if, um, but, but still, it's, uh, it's not so easy. I was wondering if uh, maybe you had some guidance in that regard. Like yes. How to embrace my confusion more, uh, more and not, not, not push away. Well, that's the right direction, because ejecting or rejecting your confusion is more confusion, you know. Um, and similarly, when we practice zazen, uh, we say uh, non-thinking. Non-thinking means that we don't grab a hold of our thinking, our thoughts, our confusion. We don't pursue it, and we don't reject it. We don't try to push it away. If you don't pursue it and you don't reject it, this is called just sitting, shikantaza. So in our daily life, uh, a phrase that, that, uh, that I know from Shohaku Okamura, who's the man who was teaching about Dogen that I was mentioning earlier in Chapel Hill, uh, who's a wonderful teacher and practitioner, um, he says, we're deluded, but we shouldn't be deluded by our delusion. We're going to be deluded. We're going to be confused. But to know that we're confused and deluded is way different than being deluded and not know that we're deluded. We're much less likely to be caught in a, in a rigid way in a stuck way with our delusion if we understand that, oh, this is delusion and this is delusion. That is, if we're not deluded by our delusion, again, it's that same quality of ongoingness. You know, we just ongoingly open to the next moment. And we ongoingly not sure I could say this, but I'll try. Release our current deluded mind. So that's one point. And then, uh, yeah, maybe that's good for now. Okay. Oh, I wasn't stopping. I'm sorry. I was just bowing to that person. Though <laughs> you may want to. <laughs> just maybe one or two other points. Yes, Catherine. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, this came up when you spoke, and then a few people were amending your list, so I wanted to make an, offer an amendment to your list of um, Western contributions. Oh, good. Uh, I think uh, I look around the room, I see a number of people involved in arts of various kinds, performance and visual and literary. And good. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, as we know, that really did happen in Japan as well in the way that they did it, you know, the, the, many, uh, the many arts that are founded uh, in Zen, uh, but it will happen in its own unique way here, uh, in the way that we do things, so. Good. Maybe just one other question or comment? Yes. Yeah, I don't know where I came up with that. 
Oh, but good. Also, it brought up um, sort of the terror of doing that. Like that actually oh, yes. feels correct, mm -hmm. but it's also quite terrifying. Yes. Um, and yes. Well, that's a very beautiful, thank you for bringing that up, and that's a very important point. In the sutras sometimes, in the Diamond Sutra, it says uh, something like, uh, if you read one line or one verse of this Diamond Sutra, and you are not terrified, <laughs> that's very good, you know. Or yeah, I think it's Sabuti who asks uh, uh, Buddha, you know, well, if people hear about this, they're just going to be terrified and frightened. What am I going to do? How, how, what are we going to do about that? You know. So I think uh, there is, oh, and another quality of what I was trying to convey is we usually try to locate our security in what's secure. We usually try to locate our security in, you know, my Mercedes-Benz XKG or whatever it is, you know. Oh, then I'm secure. Or maybe I have 10 Mercedes XKGs, you know. We locate our, our, you know, which is very popular in our culture, is trying to locate our security in material possessions, in the number of greenbacks we've got in the back, bank, you know. Or we locate our security in some other thing that's held on. But another way of saying what I was trying to express is that in our practice, we locate our security in insecurity. This is called reality. <laughs> the, re the reality of the way things are. So on the one hand, well, that's a good idea because that is the way things are. On the other hand, it's a, it's a, a frightening prospect or a, uh, certainly a daunting prospect, appropriately so. That's why, I shouldn't say exactly that way, but I will, that's why we have the three treasures. The three treasures are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We have those three treasures because those support us, those help us, and we help others in Sangha and in Dharma, in hearing the teaching and listening, in hearing the teaching, thinking about it, and practicing it, and verifying it. And, uh, and Buddha is, uh, you know, to, 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 to Buddha is both to, like with Suzuki Rishi, to be with someone who embodies that and also the Buddha in us. These are all, these, these three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, all support us in the difficult work of practice. The difficult work of practice is not now the way I sit, I have much less pain in my legs, but I used to sit on Zafu. And I went through just enormous pain for many, many years, you know, but that's not the difficulty of practice. That's the pain in our legs is not the difficulty of practice. Sitting for hours and hours and hours is not the difficulty of practice. The difficulty of practice is getting with the program, getting with the program that has no program. Because usually if we, wa we want a good program, you know? <laughs> but this is the program, programless program. You know? That's, uh, so it, one, of the, one of the requirements, or not requirements, but one of the things that happens in practice is 
we build, there's a way that we can build that muscle yeah. of our willingness to uh, let go. Okay, well, again, thank you very much. So now we will end. Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.